The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage today is Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. And I will read through chapter 19, verse 10. Please stand as we read God's word. Luke 18, 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Sermon title this morning is God's Work of Salvation. So this is what you see there. If you really want to hang that title on any verse, you can hang it on chapter 19, verse 10. We're going to see that Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Son of David. And he came to seek and to save the lost. The main idea this morning for any of our kiddos, the big treasure that you want to put down in your journals as you're just learning to go treasure hunting from God's word is these verses teach us this truth that God's work of salvation is possible all because of Jesus. God's work of salvation is possible all 
because of Jesus. Here shortly, you're going to say, hear me say that this chunk of Scripture has a direct tie back to the text that we saw last week when you see that interaction between Jesus and the rich ruler and what Jesus says to him. And the people are like, well, who in the world can be saved then? And Jesus says something along the lines of what is impossible with man is entirely possible with God. And what we're going to see now is Luke explains that with God, God's work of salvation is possible and it's possible all because of Jesus. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to do so as well, to hear clearly from God this morning. And I'm going to pray along the lines of 1 Corinthians 2 for us, and then we'll dive into the text and see what the Word of God has for us. So let's pray. Father, I am a messenger with a message that I believe comes from you. And so, Lord, as I begin to open my mouth and speak, I'm asking for you to make these words true for us this morning, that when I came to these brothers and sisters with your word in my lips, that it would be known that I did not come proclaiming to us the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The Lord, just would it be known that I decided to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified that it can be said that I was with us in weakness and in fear and much trembling and that my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that the faith of those here this morning might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, do these things for your name's sake, O oh God. Do these things, Holy Spirit. Shine the spotlight on King Jesus, the Son of David, this morning. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Notice this one. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Echoes of mercy and whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Blessed Assurance. A hymn that is most likely familiar to many of us if we have a church background. It was written in the year 1873. And the words of this hymn were put to paper by Fanny Crosby. A very prolific hymn writer wrote 8,000 plus hymns that many of us know about. What many of us may not know is that at six weeks old, Fanny Crosby went blind. And so when she writes words like visions of rapture now burst on my sight, it should cause us just to 
pump the brakes a little bit because she is writing this as a woman who physically cannot see, but yet, despite her physical blindness, it is hymns like this which prove she was a woman who had the clearest 20-20 vision you could ever possibly hope for because she saw Jesus clearly. Now, I say this because the theme that ties these three sections of Scripture together, Jesus foretelling his death for the third time, the blind man on the Jericho Road, and little tax collector Zacchaeus, the theme that ties those three chunks of Scripture together is the theme of sight, pointing to disciples who have truth hidden from them, truth that they cannot see, this blind man who wants to recover his sight, and a chief tax collector who seeks to see Jesus. All of this seeing sight language, it's just peppered all over the text. And from these interactions, we learn that for any person to be saved, they must have their spiritual sight restored. We need Jesus to come and open our eyes to see our need for the Savior. You see, this language of seeing and sight and this theme that Luke is weaving through these three chunks of Scripture, they are the culminating answer to the question that was asked to Jesus back in chapter 17, verse 20, when some teachers of the law come to Jesus and ask Jesus the question, when will the kingdom of God come? When is it going to come? When is it going to arrive? And Jesus, we remember, answered, there is a future tense aspect to the kingdom. It's going to come. It's going to be unmistakable. No one's going to question on the day when Jesus comes back. But don't cast your vision so far forward that you negate the present tense nowness of the kingdom. And Jesus, for a while now, in this chunk of Luke's gospel, has been answering the right nowness in the present tense nature of the kingdom of God, and he's been saying that the kingdom of God comes to any person who humbles themselves and receives the kingdom of God like a child. And if you remember last week, to receive the kingdom of God is Bible talk for eternal life language. It's salvation language. But the question that any of us should ask, if it's true what Jesus is saying, and it is true what Jesus is saying, that the kingdom of God comes as any person humbles themselves and receives it like a child, we should be asking ourselves then, well, how does a person come to see their need to receive that gift? Because it's being offered as a gift to any of us here today, but we all know that it is entirely possible to know that a gift is being offered, but to draw the conclusion, I'm pretty sure I don't need what you're giving out. I don't need that gift. Classic example is a doctor walks in through the back door and says, hey, everybody, I have discovered the cure for cancer. Here is the gift. It's in this medicine. Take this shot. It is yours. Most of us would go, that's phenomenal, but I don't need what you're given because I don't have the problem that you're suggesting that I have. And then the doctor comes in and says, actually, here's the blood work from your doctor's office visit last week, and it proves you do have cancer. All of a sudden now, your eyes have been opened to see, oh, no, I do need the gift. The question is, how does anyone's eyes get open to see their need to receive the gift of salvation from Jesus? The answer is, from this text, we need Jesus to do to us what Jesus did to the blind man on the Jericho Road. 
Remember, our text comes right on the heels of Jesus' interaction with that rich ruler who was banking on his human effort to be right with God. If you remember, the rich ruler that Jesus was interacting with was blinded by the love of money. Do you remember that conversation from last week? He's like, I've kept the commandments. You know, I'm honoring mom and dad. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not a murderer. And he runs through the list. And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all your stuff. Because he was zooming in, focusing in on commandment number one, love the Lord your God. In other words, with no other loves, he's the supreme love. And what was exposed was this rich ruler was blinded by the love of money. And then Jesus was helping him to see, because of that, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the rich ruler failed to see his need for a savior. Now the disciples were obviously shocked by this because right on the uh, heels of Jesus saying this, they posed the question, then who on earth can be saved? Because according to them, from their physical standpoint, if anyone was a true member in God's eternal kingdom, it was this guy, Mr. Moral, Mr. Righteous, Mr. Lawkeeper. This guy is surely going to be an eternal life guy. But Jesus declares in answer to their question, then who can be saved? This response, what is impossible with man is possible with God, which sets up the tea for all of our text this morning. It is impossible for man to save himself. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. These verses this morning of Jesus talking about what he will accomplish in Jerusalem, the blind man and Zacchaeus are screaming at you and they're screaming at me from our pages of our Bible this morning. And what they're screaming is this, whatever you are doing, stop what you're doing, come and see how God accomplishes what is humanly impossible. And the first thing that God does to accomplish What is humanly impossible is that we see this, point number one, that salvation is possible with God because Jesus defeats death. That's what we see in verses 31 through 34. This is little treasure number one for all you kiddos out there. Salvation is possible because Jesus defeats death. This is how God accomplishes what is humanly impossible. He does it through Jesus. Look at in your Bible in verse 31. Look at what it says. And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, listen guys, see, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. Remember, as far back as chapter 9, Luke has been giving us these little travel markers. Jesus has his face set to Jerusalem. He's heading up to Jerusalem. He's getting closer to Jerusalem. And now you see this language here even again. We're going up. We're just about there. And what you need to know in verse 31 is this. Everything that is written about me, the Son of Man... By the prophets, it is going to be accomplished. It will be accomplished. So again, ever since chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. This is how Luke has been unfolding the Jesus story for us. He's been unfolding it like a travel map. And what he's saying is that you need to know Jesus is like right on the doorstep of his destination. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he is going to accomplish everything necessary for our salvation. Jerusalem is where Jesus must die, and that journey is just about to be complete. 
This is the third time now in Luke's gospel that Jesus has said very plainly that I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to die, and then on the third day, I have to rise again. Like these are the things that are going to take place. But you see there in verse 34, the disciples, it's interesting language. Like Luke keeps saying the same thing over and over again. He says, listen, when Jesus said this now for the third time, and the implication is he said this very clearly, that they do not understand him. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was being said by Jesus. And it's not that like all of a sudden they just couldn't like comprehend the grammar of verbs and nouns coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's this idea of their conception, their perception of what God's Savior would look like and do has no room in it for suffering and death, especially death at the hands of those evil, evil Romans. That looks like defeat. That doesn't look like victory. And so they don't quite see. They haven't had their eyes opened to the necessity of the cross quite yet. You see, but their blindness doesn't negate the fact that God's Savior dying for the salvation of sinners is nothing new. So it's not like when Jesus is saying this, all of a sudden this is brand new coming out of nowhere. What Jesus is saying in verse 31 is, listen, we're going to Jerusalem because everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets is going to be accomplished. You can go back into your Bible, he's saying, and see how God's plan A from the beginning and how there is no other plan B is for the Son of Man, me, to go die for the salvation of sinners. So what we can say then is this, is that Jesus' journey to his death and resurrection, it's not some tragic mistake. It's not like the most extreme example of, oops, wrong place, wrong time. You know, Jesus, if he just would have made one little decision to linger a little bit longer at Zacchaeus' house, maybe he wouldn't have been crucified. No, like there's no way Jesus could ever not be crucified. It must take place. It must happen. It was a fulfillment of everything written about him. So, for instance, you go into the Old Testament and you see men like the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah made very clear when he starts talking about who God's Savior would be, he starts talking about the language that God's Savior would be a suffering servant. A servant who's going to serve us in this way by dying for us, but his death's going to come through suffering. And Isaiah said of him... Things like this, that I give my back. This is like the words of the suffering servant talking. I give my back to those who strike. You see that language here from Jesus and Luke. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's Isaiah 56. Jesus says, I'm going, like, this stuff's going to happen to me. Isaiah wrote further that the Savior's sufferings would ravage his body beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. If you know the process of crucifixion, you know that that was true of Jesus. They turned his body into like human burger and murdered him on the cross. And it was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus is like, there's no way this cannot happen. Like it's got to. From the beginning, if you go further... You see that this was God's plan so that what is possible with man would be possible with God. As the suffering servant, it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord. 
It was his design. It was his plan. At the cross, Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted. At the cross, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. At the cross, Jesus bore our griefs. Jesus carried our sorrows. Why? So that his chastisement would bring us peace and that his stripes we might be healed. Listen, salvation for sinners is possible because Jesus has defeated his death by his death and resurrection. That has been foretold and it was accomplished on that first Easter weekend. You see, this is the way in which entry into God's eternal kingdom will be made available to all who come to him like a little child. Do you see this? This is what, what Luke is putting before us. The temptation is to look at the disciples and read verse 34, and it's to be maybe just a little, little too hard on, on those disciples. The temptation is to come to them and draw the conclusion, you know what, man, how could it be that they just couldn't see what was going on? Surely they would have figured out how a mocked, flogged, killed Savior would accomplish salvation, but it's very easy if you're in their shoes to go, this is not mentally computing. I don't understand how you dying, Jesus, actually equates into victory. It's just not hard to put yourself in their shoes. And so the temptation to be hard on the disciples who just can't see their need for Jesus is not just a disciple problem. It's a problem for you and me today, is it not? We struggle with the exact same thing, whether in matters of salvation or in matters of daily following Jesus as a Christian, we too fail to see Jesus as we should. Some of us are here today, and just in, in the genuine honesty, integrity of your heart, you can say this, man, like, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Maybe I've grown up around it. I've heard it before. I understand it. I know the data. I can write you a term paper on it, these sorts of things. But you would say this in a, in a, in a, in a word that sounds like the disciples, like, I just don't see my need for Jesus. I just honestly don't. Life minus Jesus enthusiastic sum up it's okay it's going well or for some of us where we would say you know what no god has opened my eyes i see my need for jesus that's not hidden i've come to him for salvation any number of us who would say i'm a genuine member in the kingdom of god in other words i've received the gift of eternal life by trusting in jesus any one of us could come up here on this microphone right now and list out the daily ways that we fail to see our need for jesus amen you never graduate beyond your need you're going to hear me say something like that here in a minute. In a minute, the blind man is going to scream out the near same prayer that we saw the tax collector last week screaming out, which is this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Son of David, have mercy on me. We never graduate beyond mercy. For some of us, we're like, mercy got me into heaven. Woo! Got the, got the fire insurance, got the hell escape card. And then somehow we're like, ah, I don't know if Jesus and I didn't really need to hang around anymore. Now, we don't say that. But functionally, so many of us as Christians, chief of sinners right here, live out our days where we're like, yeah, the Jesus guy, I'm not sure I need him today. 
And so what we see here is that because of who Jesus is, because he is the Son of Man, because he is this Daniel 7 figure, because he's going to go to the cross, because he's fulfilling all that was said about him, because he's going to die, because he's going to go into the grave, because he's going to resurrect from the grave, rising again on the third day, the truth that any of us can cling to here today, the person who's like, I have yet to first see my need for Jesus and salvation, and any man or woman who can come along and say, I've seen my need for salvation, but I struggle to see him in my for my need in daily life, the invitation is come and cast yourself on this Jesus because he is the friend of sinners as he's about to show us with the blind man and Zacchaeus. He is the friend of sinners. If the temptation in your heart right now is to go and run off and try to polish yourself up so you can present a squeaky clean version of yourself, it's lipstick on the pig to borrow a phrase I feel like Chance Newingham would use. You're just trying to to polish up what can't really be polished up. You need a whole new inside out, born from above change. And Jesus is in the business of doing that according to chapter 19, verse 10. So really, as the story continues, and as Jesus continues his march to Jerusalem, this language of salvation is possible because Jesus defeats death, rolls right into point number two with this blind man healing in front of us. And what we see in point number two is that salvation is possible because Jesus gives sight to the spiritually blind. Remember, Luke is giving us all we need to know to grasp and wrestle with why salvation is possible with God. Y'all, salvation is possible with God because Jesus defeated death. Amen. Also, salvation is possible with God because he opens our eyes to see our need for him sees our need to be saved. So this is little treasure number two. Look, starting in verse 35 in your Bible. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. The other gospel accounts tell us his name. His name is Bartimaeus. And hearing a crowd going by, he, Bartimaeus, begins to inquire what this meant, right? He can't see. P.S., it's no mistake we sang the song that we sang earlier today. Specifically, ask Charles if we could sing that. It's one of my favorite songs born out of one of my favorite pieces of scripture here. But he can hear. And so he says, what's going on? What's all the, the hubbub about? And so they, the crowd, begins to tell blind Bartimaeus, you need to know this, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so this prompts him to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So something's been going on in this guy's life. He sees that Jesus is just not a man of Nazareth. He sees that Jesus is the son of David. Son of David is Bible talk for king. The king is passing by. And not just like little K king, like capital K, king of kings is passing by. So somehow blind Bartimaeus has been stitching together truths and realities about Jesus. And he's like, the guy is here now? Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries out. I need you right now to show up in my life. Jesus, have mercy on me. And those who were in front were like, tell that fool to shut up. Rebuke him. Tell him to be quiet. But this just made him go, if you're going to try to crank my volume from 10 down to 5, I'm going to crank it to 11. Right? We're going big. So he cries out even more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
So here's the physically blind man. But like Fanny Crosby from earlier, she's not the first one to be physically blind but have perfect 20-20 spiritual sight. She's following in the footsteps of blind Bartimaeus. The disciples do not see their need for Jesus to die. We just talked about this. The crowd going by merely sees that Jesus is just of Nazareth. So they don't quite fully see who Jesus is. But with the eyes of faith, the blind man sees perfectly. What does he see? He could see who Jesus was. King David, 2 Samuel 7, received a promise from of old that you will have a king who sits on your throne forever. Blind Bartimaeus has stitched it together. He's here right in front of me. He could see Jesus for who he is. He is the son of David, the long-promised messianic king of David's line. But notice this. Not only could he see who Jesus is, but he could see his own need for Jesus. And that's why he's shouting what he's shouting. So in stark contrast to the rich ruler who failed to see that his hope of eternal life was found in Jesus alone. He was trying to earn his way into God's kingdom, the rich ruler. But like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, this man shouts, I need mercy and I need it now. And there is only one dispensary of mercy that can cover and wash my sins away, and it is the son of David. This is a man Bartimaeus is a man whose eyes have been opened to see his need for Jesus. He is helpless. He isn't standing on any rights. And like a child, his need takes him right to the only one who can help. That's why blind Bartimaeus is a perfect example. His physical reality is a perfect mirror of our spiritual reality. So Jesus asked him, and this question, I read it, and I've been rereading it. I read it over and over again when I was on sabbatical. I was reading it before, I'm reading it after, and this question still blows my mind. The king of heaven, the high king of heaven, is standing in front of this man, and the high king of heaven asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever tried to answer that question? The son of David were to stand in front of your face, stoop down to your level, look at you with eyes of extreme compassion, grab you by the collar of the shirt, as it were, and ask you the question from the king, what do you want me to do for you? It's a hard exposing question. Notice, the son of, notice that blind Bartimaeus isn't like, well, you know, a Lamborghini in the garage would be a little swell. A little Roth IRA upgrade would be a little nice. You know, can I get some extra points on the Southwest Flyer miles? You know what I mean? It cuts right to the heart. And what he says is this, I, I need to see. I need to see. This isn't a genie in a bottle trick. This is desperation born out of full knowledge of who Jesus is. And Jesus stands there and asks you, what do you want me to do for you? I would encourage you to try to answer that question today. Not genie in a bottle Jesus sort of way, but to take the high king of heaven at his word that he has a care for you. That he loves you, that he is the friend of sinners that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now here he is asking the question, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And seemingly without hesitation, Jesus immediately goes, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
Now, if you remember, this is the fourth time that phrase has showed up in Luke's gospel, and every single time that it has shown up, the actual words in the original language is this, whatever the request was, and then Jesus says, your faith has made you well, your faith has made you well, and the original language can go like this, your faith has saved you. In other words, you have just been saved by faith in me. That's why this is going on. In other words, this blind man has just been saved through faith in Jesus. In this moment, what this man is doing is he's casting everything on Jesus and he's resting nothing on anything else. It's all on Jesus. It's all in. And in this way, his movement from blindness to sight, it stands as a visual aid for what is necessary for any one of us here to be saved. This movement from blindness to sight. Jesus opening eyes. We need Jesus to do this. It's necessary for anyone to be saved. Just as the blind man, listen, just as the blind man needed the miracle of sight given to him so that he might see Jesus and be saved, so it is the same for every one of us here spiritually. As we sang earlier, the blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. How horrifically downgrading would it be to go to a physically blind person and say, open your stinking eyes. Do it now. I don't care if you're blind. Reach within yourself and unblind yourself. It, it would be atrocious. The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. Trust me, if they could, they would. And spiritually speaking, if we could unblind our spiritual eyes we would go ask any number of people living today why they are doing what they're doing and believing what they're believing they anchor themselves into sex drugs rock and roll they anchor themselves into work they anchor themselves into control they anchor themselves in relationships they anchor themselves in the money they anchor themselves into power why because they're trying to unblind their eyes they're hoping this might be the salve i can rub on my eyes to give me Sight, And what we know is that there is no human salve that can unblind the spiritual blindness of our lives. We need the son of David to show up and say, I am telling you, you receive sight now. But here stands the blind man leading us to see the identity of Jesus and the emergency of our need because Jesus is who he is. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me because of the doubts and the fears in my own soul, because of matters in my family, because of matters in my marriage, because of the press and the load of work in my life, because of the reverses in my loved one's health, because of the sudden murkiness that's occurred about my future plans son of david have mercy on me son of david have mercy on me son of david i want to see son of david have mercy that's the cry of the heart of the man or the woman who sees like i ain't ever graduating beyond mercy it's the first song of the newly opened eyes of blind Bartimaeus. It's the song of the newly spiritually opened eyes of any man and woman. And it's the song intended to be the song of every man and woman and child who follows Jesus until the day he comes back or the day you die and go meet him. It's son of David, have mercy on me. Friends, salvation is possible with God because, because Jesus, the merciful Messiah, 
gives sight to the blind. Lastly, point number three, salvation with God is possible because Jesus seeks and saves the lost. He's in the business of hunting down and seeking and saving the lost. This is little treasure number three, kiddos, all right? Salvation is possible because Jesus seeks and saves the lost. So in many ways, when you transition right into the story of Zacchaeus, guess what we get? We just we get a real live example of what we've just been talking about, okay? In other words, Zacchaeus is like a cherry on top of the salvation Jesus saves Sunday, right? If you're like, top it all off for me, show me what's going on, Luke goes, blah, here's Zacchaeus. Let's look at him for a little bit, okay? So in chapter 19, verse 2, notice that Luke tells us that there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Hopefully, the past couple chapters of Luke are all colliding together now because he's just told a parable last week about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's a tax collector. He just told us about an interaction with a rich ruler whose money was keeping him out of heaven because this man loved money more than he loved God. And now what we have is a tax collector who's rich. And the question that is here before us is this, will Zacchaeus be the next rich ruler? Is that, is that what's going on? Is he going to be a man in love with his money? Is he going to be a man thus in love with his sin? Or will Zacchaeus see his need for Jesus and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord? What's going to happen? With a joy that I'm sure that blew the lid off of heaven, we see actually the latter. That Zacchaeus sees his need for Jesus and receives Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because I guess he's of like Danny DeVito stature, height. He climbs up into a sycamore tree to, notice verse 4, see Jesus. There's the language. Notice that Jesus stops, looks up at him, and calls him by name. Zacchaeus was looking for him, but what he finds out, and what many of us found out when I began to go, I think I might need to figure this Jesus thing out, you find out Jesus is already like, you know, in my mind, because I'm weird like this, it's the meme with Kermit the Frog sipping that cup of Lipton tea, right? That, like Jesus was already sort of sipping the tea, like, hey, I'm glad you showed up, man. I've been hunting you down for a while. You're like, whoa, there he is. And he's like, yeah, I've been pursuing you before you ever were even pursuing me. That's what Zacchaeus finds out right now. He, he shows up in the tree. Jesus stops and looks up and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must come to your house today. There's a divine must right there. He's like, dude, I, like, this is no accident. Verse 10, if you jump down to the very end, tells us that as the Son of Man, Jesus came to do this very thing that he's doing to Zacchaeus right now. He came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, Zacchaeus is a living version of the lost coin that the woman lost in her house. Zacchaeus is the living version of that one lost sheep that the shepherd lost out of the 100. Zacchaeus is the living example of that. Many of you could say, man, I was of lost coin nature. I was of lost sheep nature. Jesus sought me and saved me. And this is what he's doing with Zacchaeus. Notice that when Zacchaeus receives, received Jesus joyfully, Again, this is Bible talk that here stands a man who has received the gift of eternal life. He has received the gift of entry into the kingdom of God. Here stands a true born-again man in God's kingdom. And just like the Jericho blind man, this Jericho tax collector has been saved through faith in Jesus. And you see that language in verse 9 when Jesus says, For today salvation has come to this house meaning Zacchaeus is a true son of Abraham. That's a weird phrase. We don't often use that. What does that mean to be a son of Abraham? Do you remember how the Bible so often describes Abraham? Abraham was counted right with God by faith, not by works. 
So this isn't all of a sudden like, you know, Jesus is going into genealogy mode going, you know, if you test his DNA, he's got like Jewish ethnic DNA in him, that, these sorts of things. He's like, no, 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 here's a true son of Abraham. Here stands a man who's leaning on me for salvation by faith, by faith. And if you're like, well, what's the evidence of Zacchaeus' salvation? It's found right there in verse 8. It's right there in the fruit of his genuine repentance. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This isn't Zacchaeus trying to corner Jesus, saying, if I do something good, will you give me salvation? This is because salvation has come. The immediate impact of followership of Jesus is that his wallet cracks open. He says, I've done wrong, and I'm going to make things right. Friends, this is just what the Son of Man has come to do. <laughs> he has come to defeat death by his death. He has come to give sight to the spiritually blind. He has come to seek and to save the lost. Go back to Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000 hymns, and here's one of them. She wrote this. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. What you need to know is that hymn written by Fanny Crosby was born right out of our text this morning. That hymn that she wrote sounds an awful like Blind Bartimaeus. With Blind Bartimaeus that occasion where he was sitting by the gates and Jesus was walking by, it is this, on that one occasion, that was the one occasion when Jesus would pass by this man, when Jesus would pass by his need and notice what Bartimaeus did. On that occasion, he cried out, have mercy on me. And with no sense of weirdness before you this morning, can I just say to you that Jesus is passing by you this very morning for the preaching of the word? Like, I'm not like getting all like Bruce Willis, I see dead people kind of thing, like Jesus walking around, like that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is through the preaching of the word, we have the assurance that Jesus shows up. And in a very real sense, he's passing by you right now. Zacchaeus in the tree, he's passing by. Blind Bartimaeus, put yourself in one of those stories. He's passing by you right now this morning. And know this, he may never pass by you again in this way. He may never do it again. You might die tomorrow. We don't know. You might be called away somewhere else. We don't know. As Jesus passes by, the question is this, if today you hear his voice, are you going to harden your heart? If Jesus is saying to you what he said to Nicodemus, I need to come and you and I need to have a chat, chat today, are you just going to do this, spiritually speaking? He may never call your name again. He says to you, what do you want me to do for you? And you're like, I, you can do nothing for me. That's what you can do for me. Or is it going to be, I need you to give me sight to see my need for you because I'm not quite sure I understand what that means and I'm not quite sure the full impact this will have on my life, but I know this, I am blind and I need to see. And as the son of David, you're in the business of giving sight to sinners like me. Have mercy, please. 
please have mercy. Amen, period. I think that's what the cry of our heart can be today. Son of David, have mercy on me. The question is, have you asked Jesus to have mercy on you? If you're like, man, I have no clue to how to even answer that question, will you please come find me? I'll bend over backwards to have a coffee with you to help you process that question. If you're like, yeah, I, I haven't, and I am right now, and you're like, I need to talk to somebody, will you come find me after service today so we can begin to unpack what this means to deny self, die to self, and follow Jesus? Or you're like, man, you need to back the apple cart up, Pastor John. Like, I've got like 100 questions to ask before we ever get there. Will you still please come and find me? We will help you find the answers you need so that way you can come and call on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's do that right now. Jesus, we call on you. We call on you. Lord, here's what I know. Many of us, most likely, I think this is just a generalized statement that's true of many of us here, Lord, and it's this. Like, we've, we've brushed up against Christianity quite a bit. We've had moms and dads who, like, have led us, moms and dads who claim the name of Christ, aunts and uncles, I don't know, somebody in our life. Uh, but because they're sinners, <laughs> they haven't done it well, and they haven't done it perfectly, and maybe we're just like wrestling with something like this. We're like, God, like, I don't even know, you know, how to process these things because it seems like there's whole, you know, hypocrites out there or whatever this is, and this has given us doubts. I don't know, Lord, maybe there's someone here. But Lord, would you open our eyes to see that while that is true, we still have a blindness problem. And that while it's easy to poke out the problems with everyone else, Lord, help us to have the grace to like look at our own heart and poke out our own problem, which is this. I need the Bartimaeus Jericho grace applied to my life. Lord, if there's someone here that's just like, man, I don't know. I'm just tired. And I don't even know how to answer the question if Jesus were to ask me, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, right now, would you just draw near to this person? Would you help them to see that you are gentle and lowly? Would you help them to see that you are not somehow veiny-necked and red-faced, screaming at them because they just aren't, aren't sure, but that you are like a magnet drawn to metal to the downcast, the doubting, the struggling, the confused, the apathetic, passive, the faint-hearted, the weak. God, would you help them right now to see this need can be met in you if they would just come to you. So Lord, do these things for your name's sake. Do these things for your glory. As I prayed earlier, man, there is surely no amount of words or turns of phrases I could ever say, ever say to make these things just like magically click in someone's mind. But Lord, you do have that power, and we are leaning on that, that power to save this morning. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray all of these things. Amen.